This is Letitia Styles from Young Finances, and it's a great day to listen to the Personal Profitability Podcast. You're listening to the Personal Profitability Podcast, where you'll learn how to earn income, live better, and put your money to work for you. Here's your guide on your path to personal profitability, Eric Rosenberg. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, welcome back to the Personal Profitability Podcast. I'm thrilled to have you back, and today I want to talk to you about a topic that is near and dear to my heart personally. It's been something that I thought I might have wanted to do for a career at one point. It was a huge part of my education, and that is the stock market you know, and investing in general. But I want to talk more about stocks and individual stocks today and how that works, because those are the foundation that mutual funds and other investments are often built on. So we're going to do a back-to-basics type of episode focusing on the stock market. It's just me today, no guest. Uh, we've had some great guests lately, and uh, today I just wanted to have a little one-on-one time hanging out with you. And as happens on occasion, I, I like to say finance should be fun. So I am recording this one on a uh, Saturday afternoon, actually early evening, about four o'clock on a Saturday. And as I like to do on occasion, particularly after dinner, but hey, you know, why not on a Saturday afternoon? I'm having a, a little drink. This one is not my typical brewski. I'm having a 12-year Glenlivet. It's a uh, it's one of my favorite scotches. Got one of those round ice balls in it. If you've never seen one and you like scotch, definitely check that out. If you Google scotch ice ball, you'll find it. So I'm lifting my glass. If you are able to join me in a drink, here's your opportunity to pause. Go fill up. Grab whatever you'd like to join me with. If you're driving a car, obviously, or at work, you probably shouldn't be drinking. But otherwise, here's your pause point. All right, welcome back. So here is a cheers. If you have your drink, I'm holding in my uh, my 12-year-old scotch, so l'chaim, as we say in Hebrew. So that one's one of definitely one of my favorites. It's smooth. It's good. It's, uh, you know, I was like the 18-year a little better, but I also don't want to spring for an 18-year. It's an expensive bottle, so, so I'm having the 12. Anyway, back to the stock market. So the stock market is probably the most well-known place to invest. It's you know been very glamorized by Hollywood. It looks all you know fast paced and exciting. Millions of dollars made and lost every minute. You know it's it's a it's this huge fast paced world. A lot of people are intimidated when they're getting started. But once you really understand how it works and have a good grasp on that, you'll understand that there's no reason to be afraid of investing in the stock market or anywhere else. Um, you, you should should be investing in the markets. That's where you get you know most of your capital gains for any kind of investment. Is uh you know the the two big ones that I've seen people do are generally either stock market or real estate. Those are the ways most people do it. You know you could also build and start your own business. Something I always encourage. But for the money that you've already brought in, what do you do to grow it? You invest it, and those are those are my top two favorite places: real estate and the stock market. So today, let's talk about um let's start with the history of the New York Stock Exchange. I want to go way back in time. Picture yourself in New York City. On May 17th, 1972, that is the day the New York Stock Exchange came to be. Prior to that, everything was done very informally. If you wanted to buy or sell 
an ownership stake in a company, you'd have stock certificates, you know, old paper documents, and this is the 1700s, and you would you know, make deals like uh, like legal deals today. You meet with people, you sign some paperwork, money changes hands, the certificates are signed over and changed hands, and that portion of the company ownership changed hands along with it. So the 1700s, that was a very informal place until later on in the century. And on that day, May 17th, 1972, 24 stockbrokers gathered under a tree on 68 Wall Street, that was uh, the address, in New York City and Manhattan, and signed what was known as the Buttonwood Agreement. So the Buttonwood Agreement is what formally organized all of the different stockbrokers who were involved in these exchanges. Again, it was a actually a lot like it is today. You know, stockbrokers were very well-educated, you know, formally educated people, similar to a lawyer. They were not um, you know, just average guys off the street. So these, these people got together, signed the agreement, and that formed the New York Stock Exchange, which today is probably the, uh, the biggest stock exchange in the world, I'd guess. Definitely one of the top in the United States. There are two major exchanges in the United States, the New York Stock Exchange and the NASDAQ. The NASDAQ is more tech stock focused. And as you might guess, that came along quite a bit later than the New York Stock Exchange. But the New York Stock Exchange is actually today a publicly traded company on its own that you can buy stock in. And it's no surprise traded on the New York Stock Exchange. You can see there's some profitability in that business. They get paid listing fees and trade fees, and they provide a lot of all that infrastructure and equipment, um, the computers, the building that allows the exchange to work for stock trades that happen today. So if you're ever down in New York, you can go try to find where 68 Wall Street is on the street. And um, you know, it's right by the New York Stock Exchange where it sits today and all the, the rest of the financial district. So the modern stock exchange was a long way off. Um, but that New York Stock Exchange board that came together allowed for a formal setting for people to buy and sell those portions of those companies. And at that point, they charged a 0.25% commission on each trade. They still met one-on-one to do the trades. They just did it in a formal exchange. There were no auctioneers or anything like that. And um, that's that's the way it all came together. So over the last 200 years, you know, the, uh, the, the market's changed quite a bit. You know, it used to be these one-on-one person trades. Today, it's primarily all done electronically. So, you know, you go... I go into my Charles Schwab account, or you could go to wherever you have your your stocks. And I also have a Loyal Three account. I have several accounts just so I can you know try them out and tell you which ones are my favorites. So uh, my Charles Schwab account is where I do most of my stock trading because it's uh, it's an instant trade. Loyal Three, which is actually maybe my favorite stockbroker for for typical people, it lets you actually buy and sell stock for free. Um, there's a only limited list of stocks. You can't buy every company, but it is 100% fee-free trading. The trades go through in batches throughout the day, so it's not as instant as uh, another account. But if you're a new investor or someone who wants to get on a plan where you're investing a little bit automatically every payday or every month, I totally recommend Loyal3. I actually am an affiliate of Loyal3, so if you sign up through personalprofitability.com slash Loyal3, that's spelled out L-O-Y-A-L and then the number three, I get a little commission for sending you over. It doesn't cost you anything different, so I'd appreciate it. If you did want to give it a try, if you go through my link, um, you can get you know, all sorts of stocks. There are major, major brands that you've heard of. Companies like McDonald's, Walmart, WWE, 
Google, Apple. You know, it's a pretty big list. It's not just you know one or two companies. So Loyal Three or, or Schwab. That's generally where I do my stock trading. So you know now you go in, you click a button. It's all done by computers. A person is not actually physically involved in it anymore. Though even up through you know if you if you watch old movies from the eighties and nineties, you can see. The uh, guys in their colored jackets on the floor of the stock exchange, those colored jackets representing the company that they work for. So, you know, if you worked for, um, I don't know, JP Morgan, you'd have a different color coat than if you worked at Goldman Sachs, you know, the different stock traders out there. So um, people were going around with these slips of paper and throwing them and shouting and yelling. And that's how the exchange worked. And now it's, it's actually a pretty boring place. I, I got to go visit the stock exchange in a graduate school class. Um, you know, it was a few years ago. But when I went, it was already at a time where things are pretty much electronic. It's not, you know, this exciting thing with so many blinking lights and people shouting and yelling anymore. It's um, There's still some blinking lights. It's all computer screens now because so much is done electronically. There are some people still there in person. But generally, it's all moved to computers. And um, what how that developed in that last 200 years, those 24 original brokers had seats on the exchange that allowed them to execute trades on behalf of their clients. And over time, those original brokers, you know, the, they needed more seats, more people wanted to be come in a, uh, in a part of this exchange, and it's grown to 1,366 seats. So you have to have a seat to access the New York Stock Exchange and execute trades. And those seats are very valuable. In 2005, um, it, was, it was about the peak of what a seat would cost, and that was $4 million. Today, they're more like $40,000, and that's because things have gone so electronic. You don't need a seat anymore. You just go through through a different operator, or your company might have a, a license, and they can execute trades electronically. So um, that, that all really started around 1995. That's when the all-paper trading system began to accept electronic trades. And in 2007, that was the year people like you and me could go in and enter our own orders electronically through our stockbroker. So we didn't have to you know, make a phone call or enter an order that then they would read physically and enter for us. We can trade directly now ourselves. So that's how the computers work. In 2007, that stock exchange merged with Euronext, which is an Amsterdam-based stock exchange. And that exchange was operating primarily in Belgium, France, the Netherlands, Portugal, and the United Kingdom. And that merger created NYSE Euronext, which is certainly the largest stock exchange in the world. So there I answered my own question from a minute ago. Is the New York Stock Exchange the biggest in the world? And the answer is yes, in its current form, in its merger with Euronext. So now that we know how the markets have evolved, let's talk about what is a share of a stock. What is a stock? So a stock is a... You know, it used to be a piece of paper. Now it's it's pretty much all digital. It's a it's a representation of a share of ownership in a publicly traded company. So that's why it's called a share, because you own a share or a piece of that company when you own a share of stock. And when a company becomes a public company, there's no rule on the number of shares they can issue. So if it's a you know let's say a company that has ten owners, they could decide to issue 10 shares of stock and each shareholder owns you know one share that's one tenth of the company there could also be you know there's stocks out there companies with um, you know billions with a b shares of stock or hundreds of millions that's much more common especially now and that happens because over time when a company 
starts up, you know, there might just be a few owners and then they take investments from outside companies, venture capitalists. Uh, you know, there could be any number of reasons that you could take outside investments and lots of different ways that could happen. And each time you take an investment, it usually dilutes the ownership of the original shareholders. So rather than saying, okay, you can have, you know, one half of my share, you will just issue a whole lot of new shares so that everyone proportionally owns the right share of the company. And, you know, most, most companies, it's many millions of shares out there. And that's, um, that's what is traded. So if you go on the stock market and decide, I want to buy 100 shares, you are buying those 100 portions of ownership. And your percent ownership would be dividing by the total number of shares outstanding. So someone like uh, you know, Berkshire Hathaway, led by Warren Buffett, when they say they own you know, 10% of a company like Amex or Wells Fargo, they have bought up enough millions of shares that they own 10% of the company and they have you know, that portion of the vote. So every, every year, all public companies in the United States are required to have a shareholders meeting where uh, certain business can be brought by shareholders to the board, generally the board of directors, which is elected by the shareholders at that annual meeting. They represent the shareholders at the company and with executives. But once a year, everyone can get together and chat about it. I've been to some annual meetings. I went to the annual meeting for a company I used to work for in Denver, a telecom company that is no longer around. And I've also gone to the annual shareholder meeting of Berkshire Hathaway that I just mentioned to see to see the war, the Oracle of Omaha himself, Warren Buffett. So I've gone down three times to Omaha to, uh, to the shareholder meeting. That one's actually really cool. It's not just, um, you know, people talking about business all day. And it is about business, but a little different. So, um, being a shareholder, I'm eligible to go to that meeting and I can vote my shares as that, you know, tiny percent of every company that I own stock in. So anytime you own stock, you will likely get an annual report in a voting sheet delivered either electronically or in the mail that you can fill out or type in online to exercise your votes. So you really are a, a portion owner of the company. And some companies pay back a dividend to their owners, which is you know cash that they pay out. So you know, a company might pay 25 cents per share quarterly, so that'd be a dollar a year. Yeah, it's not going to make you rich if you just have one share, but if you have 50,000 shares, that's uh, you know $50,000 a year they're paying out, you know, it scales. Some companies pay bigger dividends, some pay smaller dividends, but your ownership is real. And um, that that's what you are buying and selling on the exchanges. So uh, when a private company, like I was mentioning earlier, might be owned by just 10 people, they typically, um, you know, they have a, what's called a board of directors. If you're a C corp, that's a legal entity in the United States that a company can be reg- registered as, they have to have a board of directors and that's the point where most companies will definitely have stock of some sort that's defined. You know, if you own a small freelancing business and you're the only person in it, like I do with my own freelancing, you know, there, there are no stock certificates or stockholders out there. I'm the only owner. With a C Corp, you can have all sorts of different owners. And there's other, there's other different types of legal structures for businesses, but typically large companies are C Corps. Sometimes there's LLCs, there's other structures, but typically it's a C-corp. So let's go back to the beginning of a company. We were talking about how shares can get diluted over time. So I want to talk a bit more about that whole process and how a stock would get listed on the stock market. So 
And let's go back to that example, a company that has 10 owners each own 10%. They all work really, really hard. They try to build the business. And one day they decide, okay, we need another $500,000. And that'll let us hire some more people. It'll let us buy equipment, whatever the company needs that injection of capital will let them grow and become a more successful and larger business. So they can do that through a number of different means. Typically, you know, if you read a lot about startups, they'll go to large venture capital firms or investment banks to try to raise the funds to get that to, to do whatever they need. So let's say they had a $500,000 goal. That could be a um, you know one person or, or a company putting that money in. And every time someone invests, they get a portion of the company. So at that point, because the companies aren't publicly listed, the value of the company is determined by how much money is invested and what percent of the company they get. So if a company invests $500,000 and gets half the company, that would say the company is worth a million dollars. You know, you can do the math and so on to, to value a company. And that is still how companies are valued once they're public on the exchange. You could look at the number of shares outstanding and the current stock price and multiply them together. And that is the total value of the company or the market cap, market capitalization. So that is what a company is worth. So let's, let's keep following this, the path of that company. So they, they got that first $500,000 investment. They're rocking along, but that money is running out. They want to get a bigger office. They want to grow more, open another factory, whatever they're doing. So that's time they decide they need to raise, you know, $100 million or $10 million, whatever the amount is. They can go out and raise different rounds of capital from different investors and venture capitalists um, are, are the typical place that this kind of money comes from or investment banks. And each round, the number of shares usually goes up and the percent ownership of the original owners all shrinks by a little bit as there's more shares added. And after multiple rounds, eventually a company might get to the point that the owners decide to hold what's called an initial public offering or IPO. That's a really important phrase to know if you're an investor. So an IPO is the day that the company publicly lists its shares on one of those major exchanges like the New York Stock Exchange or the NASDAQ. So an example of this, um, in the last couple of years, the, uh, the company Facebook went public on the NASDAQ. And on the day they went public, it raised $16 billion. And the original owners, because all of the, their shares became worth more as the, the stock price traded up, the owners became very, very rich. That's how Mark Zuckerberg became the young, one of the youngest billionaires ever in the world. And, um, that's how a lot of those those big tech people make their money. So when you hear like Bill Gates is the richest guy in the world, it's not because he's sitting with piles and piles of cash. He just owns a lot of stock in Microsoft, which is one of the biggest companies in the world. So he could you know hypothetically sell that and have cash in in the bank. But usually, a lot of those original owners and a lot of investors even still hold on to shares because the value may keep increasing and going up, and they they want to have that as the uh, value goes up. The largest IPO ever, um, the last I'd read, was when Visa went public in 2008, and they raised $17.9 billion. Actually, now that I'm saying that, I think there might be a newer one that was bigger. I think it was Alibaba. I'm going to look that up. Uh, this is probably the worst podcast moment ever, as I'm typing it into the computer. So Alibaba, that's a big... Um, 
Uh, that is the largest IPO ever. See, I just uh, second-guessed myself and I was right. So Alibaba is a large company in China. They're very similar to Amazon.com. And they went public and um, that happened in 2014. So so last September, they went public and raised, um, see, it looks like $25 billion. So that's the biggest IPO ever. That is a huge IPO. $25 billion that that company raised in one day. And in that day, you know, every person who put money in became a part owner and the the company got to keep that money. And they, uh, in exchange, they gave out those shares. So now you can go buy shares of Alibaba that the company issued that day at whatever the current market price is. So that was the biggest. The biggest in the U.S. ever that was a U.S.-based company, I think, was still Visa. Um, you know, that, was, that was a few years ago. That was right before the big um, market, Great Recession market crash around 2008, 2009. So the day-to-day company, uh, decisions at these public companies are still left up to the CEO and the executive team. So you know, there's a C-suite um, group of people, like a chief executive officer, chief financial officer, etc. They represent the uh, they go the direction that the board of directors tells them to go, and they um, you know, they run the day to day operation of the business. So as a shareholder, you don't have to worry about you know. Let's say you buy shares in Google, you don't have to go work on Google to make it make more money. Um, your opportunity to to give your opinion on that would be the annual shareholder meeting or contacting the investor relations office. But typically, people just exercise their right by voting on the uh, the issues brought to the uh, annual meeting and by electing those board of directors members who then represent your best interest, usually by a proxy ballot, which is you know mailing in your ballot rather than going in person to vote. So, you know, now that you're, let's say this company has gone public, how are their shares traded? What what does that look like? So again, in the old days, it was a pretty straightforward process. A, a broker representing a shareholder wanted to sell a stock would go under that tree on Wall Street and talk to the other brokers trying to find someone who wants to buy that stock or the other way around, someone looking to buy it might try to find someone who has a client who owns it. And those two people would just negotiate a price and one would pay and they would exchange certificates and that would be that. Um, today, it's the same principle, except because it's all electronic, things work a little differently. So when you buy stock or sell stock, there's different types of orders you can put in. Um, the most common that I've used myself, probably the most simple, is called a market order. And that says whatever the last trading price that happened on the stock exchanges, you are willing to buy or sell at that price. Um, so let's say, you know, stock's $50 a share at the last trade, you say buy or sell, you can expect that you will get at a, your trade will execute right around $50, usually within, um, within a few cents. Now, if you want to limit or set a price that you want to buy or sell at, you're allowed to do that as well with, again, different types of orders. So that type is called a limit order. So with a limit order, let's say that stock is you know, $50 a share, but you think it's um, not really worth buying unless it goes down to $48 a share. You can put in a limit order that it, you will buy it at $48 a share. And if the market price goes down low enough that it hits 48, your shares will, your trade will execute and you will get those shares. Um, the same can be done 
when selling a stock using a stop or limit order, where if it hits a certain price up or down, the uh, the order will execute. So you can set certain rules around it. And let's say though that you set that you will sell for fifty one. Someone else says they will buy for you know forty nine. No trade will execute, but because people want to you know buy or sell, even if you have a different price in mind, um, they might just wait for someone else to be willing to buy or sell. I guess it would have to be someone willing to sell for trades to execute. And that's how the, the market price goes up and down. You know, eventually, it might go up a few cents. It might go up or down a quarter. Some stocks, they can take even bigger swings. And eventually, most share, uh, most order limit or, uh, or stop orders, any kind of trade, will execute eventually if you wait. But that's not necessarily um, the rule. You know, if you there's a stock at 50 a share and you say you want to buy it at 40, it might never come down to $40 a share. So you might never get it. But then you're on the other side of the coin. What if it has a really, really bad day and it goes down to 30 a share? Your order would still execute at 40 and then you're all of a sudden you're instantly down $10 a share. That could be happened while you're you know far away from the computer. So I usually don't like to put in those types of trades, the uh, limit or the stop trades, because I really don't know what's going to happen. No one really has that crystal ball. Um, so I usually just do market orders because I know exactly what I'm getting and what price I'm getting it at. Um, but let's say you have a stock and you've already bought it and you want to lock in your profit. Let's say you bought it at 50 and now it's at $75 a share. You're like, well, you know, I, I want to keep the stock because it might go up more. But if it goes down too much, I just want to sell it. So at 75 a share, you might want to enter what's called a stop loss, which is a type of trade that does exactly what the name implies. It stops a loss automatically. So let's say the, you know, in the stock's at 75, you put in an order, a stop at 70. The stock drops down to $71. You still keep the shares. You know, it doesn't trade. If it goes down to 68, your, your trade would have executed at 70. You keep your profits and then the stock falls down farther and you don't really care what happens. Again, things can happen that you don't expect what happens if it goes down to 69.50 and then shoots up to 80 or 90. You know, your order would execute when it dropped down below 70 and then the price goes way up and you've already sold it. So you're not getting any of that profit. So again, that's a reason that I don't like to use stop losses very often, um, but a lot of people do. And if you're at a point where you've had a stock a long time, you think it's not really going to go up more, um, you know, you might put a stop in. But if I had a stock that I didn't think was going to go up more, I'd probably sell it and buy something else because that's the, the whole point. You don't, you don't buy a stock to just have the value hover unless it's paying a pretty good dividend. Uh, you, you buy it because you want it to go up. So uh, those are the two most common types of trades. And if you want to do this yourself, I mentioned earlier on, there are different brokerages who each have seats on the stock exchange. And that is how you buy and sell stocks. I was already talking a bit about Loyal Free, Loyal 3, where you get free trades. Sorry, I keep stumbling my words today. Um, so there you can buy a stock as even a percentage of a share. So let's say you want to buy a share of um, know, Berkshire Hathaway, the, the highest price per share on the, on the stock exchange. It's I think over 200000 a share now. But you obviously are probably not going to have $200,000 sitting around to buy one share. With Loyal 3, you can buy percents of shares. 
Um, there's another brokerage called ShareBuilder that lets you do the same thing. With Loyal 3, you can just buy in dollars. With ShareBuilder, I think you have to be on a recurring purchase plan if you want to buy fractional shares. Then there's lots of other uh, exchange or brokerages out there. I said I use Charles Schwab. There's ones like Scott Trade and Trade King and Fidelity and E-Trade and TD Ameritrade. There's lots of brokerages. If you find the one that you like best, just stick with it. They, um, they're they're generally pretty similar. They offer a lot of the same things. The benefit of one over another might be like if you have a, an account at um, Vanguard, you can buy and sell Vanguard mutual funds and ETFs for free, which that, that's not a stock, but it's a it's an investment vehicle that's made up of lots of different stocks. That's what any fund is um, generally. If it, you would, it would say in the name if it's something different. So there's funds that you can buy um, shares in real estate and shares in precious metals and commodities and things like that. But most funds are made up of bundles of stocks that are bought on behalf of the owners to give instant diversification. So you could buy you know, one share of a mutual fund and own little tiny pieces of you know, 100 companies or 50 companies, whatever the, the funds own. And um, so, so each each different brokerage usually has its own fund family like Vanguard or Schwab or Fidelity. You know, I just went through the list. And if you really like one fund family over another, that might be a reason to pick one brokerage over another. If you're a, a big trader and you want to trade a lot, you might be more likely to gravitate towards one with the lowest fees. You know, I personally don't trade very often. Um, I, I'm more of a long-term investor. I like the Warren Buffett value investing model. You just buy and keep it forever. And most brokerages, and it's within a dollar or two. So um, just picking the one that you are most comfortable with, that you like best is great. I don't think you should really be spending more than about $10 a trade. That's that's about the, the cap. You know, there's some that, that you buy, like Loyal 3 for free, or um, I think Trade King is the lowest cost of all the others I've mentioned. So just uh, do a little research. You can find the one that you like best. And that's uh, I, if you're brand new, I'd recommend Loyal 3. Otherwise, um, you, know, you, you might already have an account. So you can also, when you get an account, there's um, different types of research that they give you access to on the companies. A lot of that information is already free publicly on sites like Yahoo Finance and Google Finance or the company's websites and financial statements where you can pull up their financial records and performance and see how they're doing as a company because stock prices generally go up when a company performs really well. So if profits go up or signal that profits are going to go up in the future, that is a good thing. The stock price will generally rise. If the company is not doing so well, it will go down and when you have a brokerage account, you usually get access to reports that that brokerage company prepares telling you if they think the stock's going to go up or down based on that financial information. So that's um, that's the big how it all works. Now, now you get the basics So that. I want to talk a little bit about diversification, which I briefly mentioned a minute ago before I do that. My voice is getting kind of dry and cracky from talking so much. So I'm going to have a, another toast. So cheers. So as I said, you can buy funds that are made up of buckets of stocks. And that's how I do most of my investing. I have one account, probably my smallest account, that has my individual stocks in it worth you know, probably about $10,000. But most of my money, which is my retirement funds, my, my bigger accounts, 
those are primarily made up of mutual funds and exchange-traded funds. So exchange-traded funds are a, a newer idea of mutual funds. Um, you buy and sell them through your brokerage just like a stock. But when you do, you know, one example is um, I'll talk about there's a, a fund that I own called the Vanguard Equity Income Fund. It's uh, symbols V-E-I-P-X. I have that in my Roth IRA. So why would I have that rather than just going and buying a single stock? That fund owns 164 other stocks and it has really low fees. And you know, based on the name equity income, it's focused on stocks that will provide income and hopefully grow. So there, there's all different categories of funds out there. The ones that most people I think should invest in, they're, they're kind of the simple ones, the boring ones. You know, the stock market looks all sexy and exciting on TV, but the the best way to invest is really just the set it and forget it really boring method. And I like the S&P 500 index funds. Um, Vanguard has, I think, the lowest fee out there, but there's some others. And what those kinds of funds do, because as I said, index fund in the name, they track an index. So the S&P 500 is the probably biggest, most popular index to get a wide number of stocks all at once. There's 500 stocks you get when you buy that. There's other indexes like the Dow Jones Industrial Average, the DJIA, that's are just called the Dow a lot on TV. Um, that's a popular fund. There's another one called the Russell 1000 or the Russell 3000. Those are really broad market funds that buy lots and lots of stocks. There's all sorts of different ways to do it, but the one that has historically just always done really well even you know the market gets bad, but it always comes up and grows more than than it's ever grown before. Is the S and P five hundred? So that's where I have most of my focus. I also have funds that are called target date funds. They are specifically managed funds for people of a certain age or a certain target retirement year, and they buy the managers because each of these funds has a manager will buy and sell different assets, which are mostly stocks. They can also be bonds, which are fixed income investment. Um, they pay a certain amount every month for the life of the bond. That's how most of them work or um, you know, real estate or, you know, the list, there's a very big list, but um, of what funds can own, but the ones that are target date funds will automatically, without you having to do anything, someone else does it for you, shift the asset allocation to have the right risk for typical investors trying to retire at a certain point. So uh, getting more diversified lowers your risk. You know, buying stocks is risky. If you buy one company, it can go up or down quite a bit. But if you have a bunch of companies and one goes down, it won't hurt as bad as if you only have one company and it goes down or just a few. So diversification is a good thing. If you are going to buy individual stocks, please try to buy as many as you can. Don't put all your money in one basket. Have it be a basket with lots and lots of different eggs in it, or ideally even lots of baskets. So uh, so try to be as diverse as you can, and that protects you if the stock market goes up and down, um, or if one stock goes up and down. If the whole market goes up and down, you'll go up and down with the market. Um, so if you do decide to buy and sell individual stocks, uh, you have to decide how when to do that and which ones to buy. There's two really popular methods to do that. There are different kinds of analysis. So the, the biggest two are fundamental analysis and technical analysis. Now, as I mentioned earlier, I like value investing, the, the Warren Buffett style. That is based on fundamentals. It's you know the, 
how much money the company is making, how much it's spending, what it has in the bank, what it owes. Those are the fundamentals. And that is what is used to put together different financial metrics and projections that tell you what you think the intrinsic value of a share of stock is worth. So, you know, you compare it to other stocks and look at how much money they're making, if you think it's going to keep growing. You can use these complex formulas that they teach you in business school, things that I learned about, like the capital asset pricing model or discount cash flow models, and decide what a share of stock is worth. And based on that information, decide, is this a good buy or a bad buy? So that's the basics of fundamental analysis. Technical analysis is looking at what is going on in the market and using that to inform whether you should buy or sell. So with that, you look at patterns in history and see trend lines and say, oh, well, this stock is moving above its 120-day moving average or below its 30-day moving average. They use all these different um, different lines and trend lines to decide, is this a good one to buy or a bad one to buy? My favorite technical analysis tool is called Bollinger Bands. They um, predict a top and bottom price based on historic trends um, over certain different time periods that give you a range where you think the stock should go. I think that's a little bit more reliable than some of the other methods. But again, I really like fi- uh, fundamental analysis better. I think that's a better way to buy for most people, unless you're going to stare at a computer all day, every day, and do nothing else. Technical analysis isn't worth as much to most people. And uh, it's a lot more risky. It's more like gambling than investing, I think, um, you know, because you really don't know what's going to happen day to day. But over a long term, stocks tend to go up. Also, when you're buying and selling anything, ignore emotion. Always use sound analysis and logic. Um, I've made some emotion trades before, and they turned out bad. Uh, one that I'm I don't know if I should be proud of or embarrassed of. I guess I should be embarrassed because it went down ultimately. was uh, WWE, the pro wrestling company. I was a big pro wrestling fan, and I decided this was an awesome stock, so I bought it. And I used great analysis when I bought the stock. It made a lot of sense at the time. But then I ignored all of the signs that I should sell. And if I hadn't ignored those signs, I would have made a bunch of money. But I did. And I was like, oh, it's all right. It'll always come back. And then it didn't come back and it went down and I, I lost some money. Always yeah, never use your emotion when you're buying and selling because you'll end up losing money. And always be willing to lose anything you put in because the stock market is not guaranteed. It's not FDIC insured. There's no magic secret out there. If you buy something, it could go down. It could go to zero. You know, Enron was one of the biggest, most powerful companies in America until the day that it wasn't. And people who had stock in it just lost everything. So really understand the risks of investing anytime you, um, you buy and sell. Now, if you want to give it a try without risking, there's stock market games. You can do some Googling online. There's a lot of different stock market games out there where you can buy and sell stocks with simulated money, not actual money. And, um, yeah, it's a fun way to get started. That's how I did my first investing was fake investing. I think it was in fifth grade I did my first stock market game, and I did several of them through um, high school, then college, because I went to business school and focused on investing. So we focused on lots of stocks as I um, went through school. 
So that's really uh, that's really it that I wanted to talk to you all about today, how the stock market works, the history of it, what shares of stock are all about, how trades work, um, how to decide whether to buy and sell, these are all things we covered today. You can also, um, I'll, I'll link in the show notes to my most in-depth uh, post on how the stock market works. So you can read a little bit more about this if you missed anything. You don't have to worry if you didn't take notes. Most of this information is available there, which you will find a link to in the show notes. So everyone, thank you so much for listening. If you enjoy the show, really please do go on to iTunes and leave a rating. It helps other people find the show. Um, don't be greedy and keep all this goodness to yourself. Help me spread my wings and help as many people as possible. And if you do want to support me and give a uh, try for to Loyal3, that link is personalprofitability.com slash Loyal3. And I get a little kickback and you can buy and sell shares of stock absolutely free online. What's better than that? So I'm going to lift up my drink and say a big cheers. This upcoming week, I'm going to be going to FinCon, the financial blogger conference that I talk all about on this show. It's, um, it's in Charlotte, North Carolina this year, and I'm going to be live recording the next episode there at the conference. I have some special guests who have run some very big blogs before we call these guys the godfathers of personal finance blogging lined up to join us. So I'm super excited about that. And I'm excited that you guys came and listened all the way to the end. So thank you very much for being a part of it. I really appreciate your support. And until next time, stay profitable. Thanks for listening to the Personal Profitability Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a rating on iTunes or share it with a friend.